Welcome to Manifold. Today, my guest is Gilles St. Paul, Professeur à l'École Normale Supérieure. After receiving engineering degrees from École Polytechnique in 1985 and the École des Ponts et Chaussées in 1987, St. Paul graduated with a master's degree in applied mathematics from Paris Dauphine University. He then earned his PhD in economics in 1990 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Yes, very glad to. Great. Now, I came across your 2008 paper on mating and hypergamy, which I found very impressive. And it, it's something that I wanted to discuss in this interview. We'll get to that in the second half. That led me to your blog, which I also found very fascinating. I found your essays very insightful. And also, I've always been curious about the French Grand École system. And so I thought I would ask you also about some aspects of that the education system in France. Does that of sound course. like a reasonable set of topics? Of course, yes. Great. So let's start with your childhood and educational career. Maybe just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like. Yeah, well, I'm from a sort of regular family, a regular middle-class family from the provinces, not Paris. My father, my grandfather was a tiny textile manufacturer, very tiny, actually. He died with zero wealth, didn't even own his car, but he was very respected in his village. My maternal grandfather was from military dynasty, artillery officers, actually. So they were more from the upper middle class, if you want. And they were from the south of France, uh, near Marseille, basically. So my father and his brothers and sisters sort of went up the social ladder through the education system. And my father married my mother when they were, when he was doing his military service in, in Salon de Provence, which is basically an air base, you know, an air force base down in the, near Marseille. This is where my mother grew up. And then, you know, they did very standard middle-class things. My father was working in a, in a computer, in a steel company, steel plant, then a computer company, and then he moved to an American company, the Reader's Digest, basically. And my mother is an Italian teacher in high school. So you know, not a particularly interesting background it that way. People who survive well thanks to the educational system, but are not particularly connected. And so basically, what else can I say? You know, I, I was doing very well at school at that time in science. I was very good in math and physics. And when I graduated from high school, I didn't know what to do. So I did what was the obvious thing in, in France which is do preparing for, for those grandes écoles. And, and then I went to Polytechnique, and at the end of Polytechnique, I didn't know what to do. actually considered opening a restaurant, but instead, you know, I went to a semi-standard uh, path, uh, which is that 
I, I actually specialized in uh, the last class I took that was interesting to me as an undergrad. And so I uh, started a thesis in, in, in economics because I thought it was very interesting to apply mathematics to human phenomena, basically. And then I met a guy called Jean Tirole, and he told me, go to MIT. So I went to MIT, and then at the end of my PhD, I was planned to do a more bureaucratic career than I finally did. So I met another guy called Roger Guénry, who told me, you come to this research center in Paris and be an academic. And so this is what I did, basically. At the end of the day, I took very few autonomous decisions in my life, in some sense. Most of the time I did what I was supposed to do or told to do. It may sound quite un-American, but it's not uncommon in France, and I suspect in Asia it's even more common. Yes. Could you comment a little bit on how you found MIT in the American system of education versus what you had experienced in France? I found it very similar. There was a mythology. I came from this preparatory school to Polytechnic and Polytechnic, and this is something where you don't really, well, it has, it's a very good education, but you don't really grow up in some sense. You work, you have exams, you have problem sets. And meanwhile, the American undergrads, they enjoy themselves. But if they go to graduate school, they no longer enjoy themselves. They... <laughs> They have problem sets and assignments again. And, and so I found the atmosphere and the methods of education quite similar to France. Now, there are lots of American guys, not lots, but some American PhD students who were a bit scared about that because it was new to them. But to me, it was not new at all. I was almost disappointed to some extent, not by the contents, of course. But the system looked uh, so similar. Now, one of the places where there's a big difference between the American system and the French system is, I believe you guys, for two years after you finish high school, you, you get your Bach, you prepare, you, you engage in some things called the prepus in order to be admitted to yes. these Grand École. Is that correct? Right. Cool. So basically, these Grand École, they are based on the principle of Republican equality, which means that no favoritism, no nepotism, no donors, you know, we take the best people according to objective academic criteria. And for this, everybody has to take a contest, which has to be calibrated to be, you know, hard enough or discriminating enough so that there's no ambiguity about who is better than whom. So that is the principle. Historically, and we borrowed the, that system from the Chinese in the 18th century when the Jesuit missionaries went to China and they talked about that to, you know, philosophers of the Enlightenment who said, you know, look, that's a great thing to do in an egalitarian society. So in a sense, France borrowed this system of contest from the Chinese. But then over time, in some sense, accessing these positions through those contests proved, proved an interesting thing to do. And for that reason, those repas, as they are called, arose gradually over time 
because people spent more effort in order to, uh, to win the contest, in order to succeed in the contest. So on the one hand, such contests are indeed, you know, very equitable, no favoritism. On the other hand, they create some artificial scarcity. And this means that, you know, people are competing with each other, very hard to get into those schools. And furthermore, these things are getting worse. I mean, these things got worse in the recent years for two reasons. One is that the labor market deteriorated starting in the mid-70s, meaning that, you know, you are willing to work harder to secure your economic position in society. And the other thing is that the regular university, which is still training most of the students, was gradually degraded over time because following May 1968, more and more people could enter universities without being selected. So a lot of the success of the Gonze College, in my view, come from the fact that it's becoming less and less interesting to go to university. In particular, the baccalaureate, when you know about the baccalaureate, historically, is nationwide exam, which is an entry ticket to universities. So you cannot go to the university unless you have the baccalaureate. And so because of, you know, socialist demagogues, we moved from a situation where 20% of a cohort had the baccalaureate to a situation where 80% of the cohorts had the baccalaureate. So the number of people who were allowed to go to university was multiplied by four. And, and this made it increasingly attractive to go to the Grand École instead, because going to the university was not giving a very interesting signal about your quality as a worker to prospective employers. What fraction of students attend the Grand École? This I don't know. It's not that small because among the grandes écoles, you have many, many small écoles. So I would say total, because we have business, grandes écoles, we have, and we have engineering. So total, it's not negligible, maybe 10% total. I see. Yeah, that's but pretty But among that's the so-called grandes écoles, some of them are, you know, quite specialized. It's not that difficult to, to get in. And you don't get that a great job when you go out. There's a study that uh, I did with a colleague where we looked at the, we counted the number of Nobel Fields and Turing Awards won by the alumni of different undergraduate institutions. And the highest density is among the graduates of Ecole Normale. And number two in the world is Caltech. Number three is probably Harvard. And then Polytechnique is probably somewhere in the top 10, close to Cambridge and Oxford. Yes. I, I don't know if you had ever heard those statistics. I, I think there was very little interest in our results from American university presidents, but a guy called Mark Mazard, who's a theoretical physicist, and Mark, I, know I believe was, right. or was is. the director of École Normale Supérieure. Yeah, he found our results very interesting, but I think Americans didn't care so much. But I, I was very impressed by the high density at ENS. 
Yeah, it's all the more impressive that it's a much smaller institution than uh, Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge. In science, they take some 50 students per year. So it's really, you know, the creme de la creme, if you want. At the same time, it's, it's not so surprising they are doing so well because all the top students self-select to go there. Nobody, except uh, those who prefer to go to Polytechnic, nobody would, would give up going there. I guess in the US, you have people, students who are very strong, but they prefer to go to Stanford and to Harvard or you know, something like that. So you have more similar institutions. In France, there is a pretty rigid hierarchy. Do you teach these students at, at ENS? I do, yes. They, they are not monstrous. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them, I teach in a specific section which, is, which they created in the 1980s, I believe, which is called social science. So these are neither, historically, they had, you know, science nerds and humanities nerds, you know, like people who, who were devoting their lives to 13th century poetry, you know, people like that. Or people who are super strong at solving tough mathematical problems, but they could not tie their shoes. You know. But the, the, this social science... Um, category is much more balanced. They are more like, you know, they are, they are not stellar in any specific field, but they are good in every field. So it's, it's a pretty different kind of people. Many of them go to business or administration. Some of them become very good economists. Actually, Esther Duflo went through this and a number of other people, but they do not have a typical profile of the equal normal student historically who is super strong in a very limited field, in a very narrowly defined field. And so, you know, there's nothing special about teaching there, to be honest. They are like, you know, know, advanced students from Princeton or something like that. Got it. Now, in this essay that I read, which is titled On the Yellow Vest Insurrection and dated December 2018, by the way, I'm, I'm curious, do you also write a blog in French or you're deliberately your, your, your blog is in English? Uh, it's in English. Then why do I write so much in English about France, you might say? You might ask. Maybe because I want, I, I want to take off some heat, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, I'm very happy you write in English. One, one million people to read my blog, it, it might create some trouble for me. So. Okay. So if it were in French, you would, you, it would, there would be more blowback. Yeah, right. exactly. There could be. At least, you know, that's my perception. Good. <laughs> yeah, you're probably also, right. I think I do interest, well, a useful job sort of informing the rest of the world of you know, those things. Yeah, I, I was quite glad to find your blog. Let me read the first few sentences from this blog post, and then maybe you can elaborate. You write, 
the current insurrection is the result of a number of ideological, political, and economic forces, which gradually made life unlivable for the French lower middle class. How did we get here? It all started with a long cultural battle waged by the left in order to conquer and maintain hegemony. And when I read that, I was hooked. So, so please elaborate. <laughs> France is a sort of catch-all welfare state where everybody has an entitlement on resources produced by others. Okay. That's one way to view it. So there is, in fact, a pecking order, which is not official. But basically, the people who are at the bottom of that pecking order, they are free. They are told that they are going to get what they are promised, but it's not actually true. And this is what the, you know, the, what the Yellow Vest realized. They realized that they have been fooled, basically. So they have been told, look, you are going to have a great, you know, the best health system in the world. And then someday the maternity closes or the intensive care unit closes. And then they are told it's not profitable. This is why we close these things, you know, we are managers. But then the day after they turn on the TV and they, they are told about all these wonderful cultural festivals that take place in the south of France that are not profitable anymore than the maternity that was closed, of course. These festivals were, are even less profitable than the maternity. So then they scratch their head and they, and they ask themselves, you know, what's going on? Why is it that my maternity is less important than the futile distractions of the bourgeois people who attend those festivals? And the answer to that question is that they are at the bottom of the pecking order. These festivals, the, the, the cultural system, the cultural complex is important in maintaining the ideology of the middle class that supports the government. So this is why it's higher in the pecking order than the maternity of the yellow vest. So basically, you know, what made this, this insurrection dangerous to the power is that these people were not fighting to improve their situation within the system. They were actually fighting the system. Very different. And they were fighting the system because they realized that the system was based upon them being at the bottom. So this is the way it works. Now, why, why, why the left? The theory that I'm pushing here is that during the high growth of the post-war era, the proletariat, as they call it, was, you know, experiences a very substantial improvement in living standards. And so these people were starting to be homeowners, going to vacations and so forth. And the left, realized that they would lose gradually the support of this proletariat. I, I think to some extent the same thing took place in the United States, but instead of having a strategy of, uh, you know, uh, constructing your, ac your access to power based on vertical conflicts, 
they uh, changed their strategy and they tried to use horizontal conflicts, basically. Men versus women, natives versus immigrants, and so on and so forth. So there was a shift there. And this shift implied that the former proletariat was no longer social category that was favored, favored by the left. And that is the reason why they ended up at the bottom of the pecking order. So you, you write that in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the left still valorized the proletariat. Yes. But perhaps something happened around 68 with the student protests. How did it actually occur that they, they gave up on... What happened before 68 is that the proletariat sort of became less of a proletariat because of economic growth, basically. So it was increasingly difficult for the left to convince these people that they were oppressed and that they should, you know, participate in social unrest when, you know, their wages grew 5% per year and they were buying a house in the suburb of Paris. It was, not, it was no longer credible to say those things. Now, the student unrest, that's a very specific, very specific phenomenon. But basically, it's the lines of conflicts that, that, that changed around that time. The political factions that I call the left redefined those lines of conflicts in order to have a chance to, to keep power. And they were relatively successful. But it took time, basically. It started because the students, the male students, could not enter the, the girls' dormitories. So, you know, they want, it was a sort of, you know, adolescent movement. They wanted to relax constraints, social constraints on their behavior. I'm sorry, you're saying that that was the cause of the 68 student protests? Yes, it was the immediate cause, cause of 1968. I see. And then it so went it out of control and it was crazy. You know, these people were demonstrating with uh, pictures of Chairman uh, Mao Zedong saying we want no constraints. So we want to enjoy life without constraints. I, I don't think Mao Zedong is the best incarnation of that kind of philosophy. So it was just something crazy in terms of ideology, but it's, it sort of overturned the preceding social order. Now, in the U.S., I would say the left, it seems to me the left still sided with the labor unions well into the 70s and perhaps even the 80s. And did, was that not true in France? They still do, they still do in France. It's just that the labor unions do not represent. Well, first of all, the unionization rate has fallen tremendously. And that's because the, the labor unions do not represent people like the Gilets Jaunes. So the labor unions are almost a branch of the government, if you want. They are the branch of the government which is taking care of communication with those workers who are relatively well treated by the system, like public sector workers, big companies, workers, people like that. These are not the gilets jaunes. So the gilets jaunes are working poor? Is that, is that the right way to characterize them? 
Yes, working for small entrepreneurs, you know, people who pay uh, a lot of taxes uh, that fund social. Uh, yes, people like people who bear the burden of risk, and you know, they are said to be uh, the losers of globalization. But that's an interesting debate because the so-called winner of globalization in France, like the cultural industry. They, have, they are not winners of globalization. They go on being protected by, against globalization. Okay? So you have its government, they, they say to textile workers, look, you know, you have to compete in the global uh, arena. And it means that given that there are all those low-cost countries, we need to reduce employment in your sector by 70%, something like that. At the same time, they are going to say, look, you know, culture is very important for democracy, blah, blah, blah. So we continue to subsidize culture. If uh, nobody was protected, this, the non-yellow vest people, would, many of them would find themselves uh, losers from globalization. And conversely, many of the yellow vest people, they would pay their gasoline at you know, world market prices instead of paying a... 150% tax on this. So it's not clear at all that these people are losers from globalization. They are losers from government policy, which is a different thing. Is this insurrection just on pause now, waiting for another spark to ignite it? Many people think so, but the repression was pretty brutal by... Of course, it was not that brutal by historical standards. There were no things, but still, lots of people were mutilated. They lost an eye because the police was instructed to shoot these tear gas grenades directly to the faces of the people. So there was a sort of unprecedented repression. And that's because it was a new kind of protest. And an important thing they asked was a referendum, direct democracy. Is your interpretation of these events allowed in the mainstream media in, in France, or, or would it be considered very unseemly for a professor to say these things? It's allowed, but it's allowed, but it's better if you say it in a not so visible outlet. And if you are yourself uh, not so close to the center of power, <laughs> that's one way to one way to put it. Do you feel that your family background allows you to understand better the world of these religions? Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, to some extent, but on the other hand, you know, you have lots of people. If we take Macron, okay, president of France, uh, his family background is not from the top Parisian bourgeoisie, nor from uh, people who are all civil servants of all academics, every generation, not at all. So family background only plays a minor role, I think. I, I don't have a good explanation to give you, but it depends on how you identify yourself. Okay? One of the guys who went to Polytechnic with me was from a very, very peasant background. And then he went to ENA, you know, which is the top school 
for administration and he was corrupted by these people who are very bourgeois. And as a result of that, he was extremely grateful to this caste that had corrupted him and he turned out to be very loyal and he did very well. So um, I don't think it's the question of, of some background except to the, to the extent that I don't systematically identify myself with the, with the government unlike uh, most French economic, academic economists or most French academics. Are there still old leftists or communists who sympathize with these workers, these, these uh, working poor? Not really. The Communist Party as such is almost non-existent now. It's 2% of the vote I and mean, not even that. They didn't have a candidate in the last presidential election. What happened is that there is this big leftist party called La France Insoumise, which is pretty left-wing, and they tried to overtake the Yellow Vest movement. And I think that was a way to neutralize it. It was a way to... Um, transform the movement into a bunch of people who were asking for subsidies in order to stay quiet, just like everybody else. So basically, the, this party participated in the movement so that it would say, look, you know, give us money instead of, you know, give us true democracy with a direct referendum. Because at the end of the day, the feeling of those people is that you have these guys from the elite, they take the plane to go to the Cannes Festival, which is subsidized, the Cannes Cinema Festival, which is subsidized. And then they are lecturing us about global warming and, and we pay a huge tax on, on gasoline, which is making us substantially poorer and making our daily life miserable. And so if you start thinking about these things, you ask yourself, why is that taking place? And of course, the only answer is that there is no real democracy in France because the people who have a miserable life because of gasoline prices are much more numerous than those who take the plane to go to the Cannes Festival. And so you end up concluding that there is no real democracy because the people who call themselves the representatives of, of the people do not represent the people. They represent whatever, the lobbies or the orders, whatever. And so inevitably, you reach the conclusion that the solution to this situation is to have direct democracy, which of course is a very dangerous idea for the ruling class. And that's why they sent these left-wing people from the La France Insoumise, the Mélenchon political party, in order to, to dilute the movement and kill it's a basic revendication, which was getting direct democracy. Let me quote from something you wrote. You say, the Yellow Vest movement is best understood as a hybrid between the U.S. Tea Party movement and Italy's Cinque Stelle. Its position yeah. is largely incoherent, reflecting the right. diversity of its members' motivation to join. But it has two original features compared to what are used to in French agitation tradition. First, the yellow vests want less taxes in the form of lower gasoline taxes, 
but also lower taxes on small business. And second, they want more democracy, in particular in the form of popular initiative referenda. Do you have any prediction for how political life in France is going to involve? It's very hard to predict. What I can predict is that it cannot evolve from within. Now we are in a situation where there are only two political parties, if you want. The insiders of the system are those who think that they are better off as long as the system remains as it is, and those who think that the system has to be dismantled. So I think there is very little scope for reform, basically. The, the reason why Macron won is that people from the center-right and center-left were scared that they would lose power because of the so-called populists or the so-called extremes. And therefore, they created a sort of single-party system or grand coalition, if you want. So now we are essentially under a single-party system. Either you support the party or you are a populist, a fascist, an extremist, whatever. This is the present situation. And given that the single party controls the media, uh, the, the agenda, and so forth, it's very difficult for it to lose power through an election. And what's going on is that more and more people are not participating in the electoral process. So basically, the, the party, the quote, the, the mainstream, the, the party in power, accounts for at most 25% of the voters, anywhere between 12% of the voters and 25% of the voters. And basically, it survives well because it's good at dividing the remaining 75 or 80%. Because it controls the narrative. Yeah, I didn't realize that the ratio was so stark. Change takes place. It will be by some uh, brutal phenomenon, but but it will not be because the ruling parties will implement this or that policy. I, I would say the the U.S. analog is that, according to a U.S. populist, they would say. The Republican Party pretends to have some of their interests at heart, but in fact, there's a kind of uniparty which involves the Democrats and then the actual Republicans that are in Washington. And so yes. there's yes. a broad range of American opinion that's just not reflected in Washington. Right. This is quite related to the French situation, except that... We no longer have a Republican Party. We have a party called Republican, and their candidates made 4% at the election. So it's as if, you know, I don't know, people like Mitt Romney had 4% of the vote. <laughs> and we had a socialist candidate from the party of Mitterrand and Jospin and Hollande. And the, candidate, the socialist candidate made... 1.6% of the vote. Okay. So the sort of traditional mainstream parties no longer exist. The only thing that remains is Macron. And the reason is that people gathered around Macron because they are scared. So they, they, you know, they might have voted socialist, but they thought, look, you know, 
we run the risk of having no mainstream candidate at the second round. So I vote safe at the first round by voting Macron. So all the other traditional mainstream parties have disappeared, except this France Insoumise, this Mélenchon party, and of course Le Pen, but Le Pen is not a traditional mainstream party. And France Insoumise is considered as a populist too, you know, left-wing populist, even though I think they are really there to support the system. They pretend not to, but they do support the system. They had an opportunity to destabilize the government in parliament by voting some proposition of the Rassemblement National, which is Le Pen, and they didn't do so. And, and I think you said Mélenchon is actually just a kind of controlled opposition. Is that right? Yes. He's open, not yes. really. I, yeah. Right. I see. Everybody is a controlled opposition. Le Pen is a sort of controlled opposition, but Le Pen is playing the role of the villain, basically. So if the villain were to win the election, it would be a disaster, even though the villain is just playing a role, but you know, it's not the script of the play. Basically. On the other hand, Mélenchon is there to um, control the people who are socially degraded and might become radicalized. You know, like, like people who would naturally become yellow vests, tend to become extreme left-wing. And so he's selling to them some, you know, I don't know, opium of extreme left-wing. But at the end of the day, when there are important stakes, he's always running with the government. So, for example, with his current pension reform, he said you know, the program of Macron was quite clear that he would increase the retirement age to 64, okay? And Le Pen, in our program, said, no, I will not do that. And so what did Mélenchon do? He said, you know, it's a scandal to increase the retirement age to 64. And at the same time, he said, I will never side with Le Pen in my protest against the pension reform because Le Pen is a fascist. So um, <laughs> I oppose this reform. And at the same time, I support it because if I did not support it, I would side with the fascists. That's the way it works. And so at the end of the day, he's there to, to convince part of the electorate to accept their fate, because if they don't, they are, they are buttressing the cause of fascism. So that's, that's the narrative that this so-called left-wing party is pushing. And it works very well. Is there a tension between belief in rational economic actors and the idea that these political parties, the system can fool average people, uh, divide them, and keep them from pursuing their own interests? I guess you are right. There is. Now, many people are not, are not fooled, but, but they are demoralized, right? It's a bit complicated because in economic voting theory, your vote does not matter because you are so tiny, right? So at the end of the day, maybe it's not that irrational to vote according to your emotions. Because you don't control policy. Yeah, you, you get some emotional utility or satisfaction, but right. maybe not real-world utility. 
Exactly. So you watch yourself in the mirror and you said, uh, I, I fought fascism. <laughs> right. But the people who vote Macron, they don't think they fought fascism. They think, look, you know, chaos is around the corner. If my pension can be paid for five years more, or if my savings plan can be saved for five years more, thanks to Macron, that's good enough for me. And I, and I vote for Macron. That's the reason. So Macron is the party of fear, essentially. That's the way it works, and it works well. And, and that is rational. I mean, these people are somewhat rational. They could say, look, you know, in 1789, people, um, changed, people destroyed the system, and there were 25 years of chaos and of wars and so forth. So, you know, um, I'm not going to go through all this trouble if it only benefits my grand-grandchildren. That's a rational calculation. Especially if you are old, right? You are 80, you are not going to sign up for a revolution that will uh, deliver its uh, benefits when you are 90. It, it sounds like you're saying this equilibrium can persist for some time. Yeah, it can persist for a very long time. It can persist forever. It may not. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to predict what, what's, gonna, what's going to happen. Okay, let's let's switch gears. At, well, leaving leaving the state of France on a slightly pessimistic note, let let's switch gears and talk about your paper, if that's okay. Of course. So I understand you wrote this paper a long time ago, two thousand eight. But yeah. uh, hopefully, we can still discuss it a little bit. The title is Genes legitimacy and hypergamy another look at the economics of marriage and it struck me as being very much more realistic than any other economics models of marriage that i had seen for example like the, these early becker models seem you know they, they make a point but they seem just incredibly simplistic whereas you account for all kinds of things including the quality of genes passed on from the parents yes. to the children, the, the amount of utility a parent derives from the human capital that accumulates in their children, all kinds of things. So I don't know if you feel comfortable just trying to give us a short summary of it to the listener. Would that be okay? I will try to do my best because it's not necessarily an easy task. Okay? Yes. So basically, you know, in, in sociology and in a lot of economics, as I said, they consider a lot of gender differences as social constructs. There is a lot of work on why do women earn less than men, for example. Okay. Well, it's less and less true, by the way. But, you know, historically, people were looking at that. And basically, there were people saying, that is because of discrimination. And then there are, there are people saying, look, you know, no, it's because they have less human capital. But they have less human capital because of low expectations imposed upon them by society. Okay. And then you have people like, like Baker who are saying, look, you know, it's the sexual division of labor. Women specialize in domestic work. That was you know, decades ago. Uh, 
men specialize in, in market world. And then, of course, with, uh, with time, uh, this is going to go away because, the, uh, because there are machines that can do the, the homework instead. And because productivity growth makes market work more and more attractive for women. And once they switch to market work, the gender wage gap will disappear because they are going to acquire as much human capital as men, basically. So, so this is the standard narrative, which is not totally wrong if we look at what happened in, in the last decade. So when I, when I wrote that paper, uh, I came from a, from a different perspective, as I told you, uh, which is that sex matters a lot. And so if you read my model, there are no income differences between men and women. They have the same distribution of human capital. And so there is no economic asymmetry between men and women. The only asymmetry is biological. So this is if you want the starting point of my paper. I want to know how much economic asymmetries I can get in marriage markets, starting from a single biological fact, which is that women have scarce gametes, whereas men have abundant gametes. And so in my whole analysis, not for the sake of realism, but for the sake of analytical clarity, there is no sexual division of labor. Women make the same money as men. Okay. That's not the issue there. The issue is, who do you marry with? How does the marriage market look like? Okay. And so from, from there, I bring in a sort of uh, an assumption coming from the reality of nature, which is observed in all animals, which is that it's possible for the more the most attractive males to mate with many women, okay. whereas it's not possible for the most attractive women to mate with as many men. Okay. They can have uh, maybe twenty children, but not more. In the Mughal Empire, some uh, Mughal emperors had, uh, had harems with 80,000 wives. Okay. So if you have 80,000 wives, it means that you have 80,000 guys out there who don't have a wife at all. Right? So basically, I, I built a lot on, you know, lots of discussions, to, to be totally honest, that I read in the, you know, the, the men's rights advocates a sphere. That was a source of inspiration. And, and basically, the, the idea out there is that you have, you have men that I call alpha males in my, in my paper that are the most attractive ones. And a woman who mates with those guys gets the best genes for her kids. But in such a situation, like the, the Mughal emperor, he mates with 18,000 women. His wealth is divided by 18,000 between all of, those, all, of the, all of those girls. So from the point of view of a woman, if you mate with an alpha male, you get good genes for your kids, but you get very little investment in resources 
from the, the father uh, in favor of your kids. Okay? So there is a trade-off out there. Is she going to make with the alpha male and raise her kid on her own, or is she going to mate with a man which, who is less attractive genetically, but is willing to invest in the child's human capital? And the guy is going to be willing to invest in the child's human capital if he gets something in exchange. And this something in exchange is legitimacy, that is to say, an insurance that the kid is really his. So by assumption, in my paper, there is no, you know, fatherhood as a social construct. You care if you're a man, you care about your biological kids. You don't care about kids that would not be your biological kids. That's one assumption. Otherwise, there is no problem, right? And so, so basically, that's the bulk of what's going on in my paper. But women face a trade-off between mating with an alpha male uh, versus uh, and having good genes but poor economic investment in our children versus mating with a beta male and having not so good genes but more investment in the, in the children because the beta male would only mate with one woman. Invest everything in, in his kids. So that's, that's the bottom line. And then one of the central results is this hypergamy result, which is that the beta men need to compensate the beta women in a, in a marriage. And the beta woman needs to be compensated for the, for the opportunity cost of mating with a beta man instead of an alpha man. And so because of this compensation that must take place in economic equilibrium, a marriage with a rich man and a poor woman is more likely to happen than a marriage between a rich woman and a, and a poor man. Okay? So this is, this is the hyper, this is the hypergamy result. Because if I'm a rich woman, then I can mate with an alpha male and I have enough money to invest a lot of human capital in my kids. Okay? So it's, it's not a problem. It's not a problem for me. So you identify two types of equilibria that can occur, one of which you call the Victorian type, right. in which individuals marry someone more or less of the same rank in the distribution exactly. of... It's called assortative, assortative mating. Yes. And the other one, which you call the sex and the city type equilibrium, yes. women marry men who are better ranked than themselves. Yes, this is in reference to this show, which, is, which may be a bit outdated, uh, but was popular at some point, where you have very highly successful women living in New York City, and basically, with one exception, uh, they don't mate. One of them tries to mate with a sort of character who is supposed to be extremely rich, and it's this guy or nothing. Right? So, so in the equilibrium depicted in this TV series, they don't actually mate. Okay? And this is why I called my, uh, this kind of outcomes uh, sex and the city. 
having a sort of entertaining uh, vocabulary. So basically, you are right. There are these two possibilities. You are, you are totally right. And basically, which one prevails depends on uh, the distribution of income. So if the district, well, well, one result, which is not actually you know, obvious, I mean, you have to prove it, it's not straightforward, is that when there is more inequality, the sex and the city equilibrium is more likely to prevail. Okay? And the explanation boils down to actually a differential equation, so it's not that easy to interpret. But the bottom line is that when there is a lot of inequality, the wealthy beta males, okay, they are beta, but they are wealthy. Uh, they worked hard, uh, the company, etc. The wealthy beta males become more attractive for the low-skilled women because there is more inequality. So rich people become more attractive as males compared to poor people. This is what it means to have more inequality. And so the poorer women are going to you know, compete uh, harder with the richer women in order to mate with the richer beta men. Okay? And uh, this uh, competition, uh, if there is enough inequality between people, is going to destroy the Victorian equilibrium because this competition reduces the share of the pie that the most skilled women get from mating one of the most skilled men. This is what's going on in my model. So the guy says, you know, okay, you're nice, but I could marry this poor girl who's willing you know, to, to have a very little, a very small fraction of my money, so why should I marry? So because of this competitive force, the most skilled women end up being better off not marrying a beta man, uh, a beta man and mating with an alpha uh, man instead. So the sex and the city equilibrium is a situation where men at the bottom of the distribution of income do not marry, and women at the top of the distribution of income also do not marry. And so the poorest man who marries he marries the poorest woman of all women, and therefore is more highly ranked than, than the woman he marries. Whereas in the Victorian equilibrium, everybody marries somebody of the same rank. So when I read your paper, I, I didn't realize you, when you wrote it, that you were already aware of these arguments being made kind of in the popular internet sphere among I guess you would call them manosphere people. Um, yeah, right. No, I was aware of these things, and I thought it was, you know, quite interesting because uh, this uh, vision of how things work was very uh, different from um, the views prevailing in academia. So it was an opportunity to to study these things and to study them from a rigorous point of view. So it seems to me the model is very reasonable in general. It didn't seem like you formulated the model in order to reach the conclusion of the manosphere. Is no, I didn't want to reach a specific conclusion. And there are some uh, predictions that say that, you know, maybe uh, maybe the sex and the city uh, equilibrium uh, 
is better for growth than the Victorian equilibrium. It depends on the parameter. So, so basically, when uh, in the manosphere, as you call it, when uh, the decline of marriage is going to lead to the decline of civilization, uh, that's possible. But in my model, it's not the case. Uh, if, of course, in economics, we are very narrow-minded, but if by civilization you mean a GDP, um, I do not have a general result that the sex and the city uh, equilibrium uh, has a lower GDP than the Victorian equilibrium. It depends, actually. As I was looking at your yes. model, one of the parameters which I found extremely interesting is something called gamma, which is the coefficient of the contribution of the capital, human capital accumulated in the children in its contribution to the utility of the parent. So it's basically how much the parents care about the success of their children. Am I right about that? Right. And it's, it yes. seems like going back to the manosphere, you know, there are these CADs versus DADs. So the DADs would be people yes. with high gamma and the CADs would be people with basically zero gamma. Yeah, in my model, everybody has gamma, but the cats do not know. The cats are the alphas in my model, and the cats don't know who their kids are. I see. So in, in your model, if you have a kid, but you don't know who they are, you... If you, have a kid, you don't know who your kid is, you cannot invest in his or her human capital. Like, this is what's going on. I see. On. I see. Got it. So... Basically, you know, one important component of that model is that as a male, you can only know that your kids are your kids, provided you have signed an enforceable contract with a woman who says it's your kid. And the alphas, they, they accept all the mating opportunities, uh, uh, but they do not have those marriage contracts, at least not necessarily each time. So they don't know that the kids of the women with whom they mate are necessarily their kids. And in some sense, it's a little bit uh, a stretch of imagination. It's a little bit uh, of a modeling trick, but they, they, care about, they care about their kids without knowing them. Uh, so they are better off when they, are, they have more kids, if you want. But uh, given that they don't know their kids, they cannot invest in their human capital. They wish they, they wish they could, but they cannot. I see. So these are the cats in, in my model. Everybody has the same gamma by assumption. Of course, I could have imagined another model where things take place, as you say. Okay? There is a gamma for the dads and a gamma equals zero for the cats. But in my model, it's not what's going on. You have the same gamma, but you behave as a cat because you don't know who your true genetic offspring uh, are. Yes. I, I noticed the preprint was in 2008 and the published version is 2015. Did you have a difficult time with the referees? No, it was rejected by countless journals for a number of reasons um, that you may have in your own field, which used to be less uh, salient in economics, but you know, 
Now, economics is an academic discipline where people are territorial. And um, historically, it's not my field. Uh, so um, if you're a newcomer in one subfield, then uh, it's tough, right? Because people don't like newcomers. So there is this aspect which may be difficult to um, uh, to publish. Uh, the insiders in this field uh, were not particularly interested in having uh, people migrating from other fields. It's a it's a general problem, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm. And then, of course, the other issue could be problematic in light of uh, political correctness. That being said, uh, there's a guy whom you might want to interview, David Delacroix, who actually is the editor of a journal that published my paper. He did excellent work on uh, the economics of polygamy and and he, published, uh, he publishes very well. I see. So it was a mix of outside, anti-outsider bias and political correct, correctness. I think so. Yeah. I think both effects exist for sure. Yes. Good. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I think we're well over an hour. Are there any final things you'd like to say? I... I my audience is mostly, I guess, Anglophone scientists, professors, and startup people, entrepreneurs. Any, any wisdom you care to impart as a last message? Well, uh, maybe I could say one last thing about this paper. Yes. There is a last section which looks at sexual repression. And sexual repression is a social norm which forces people to marry. And if you have such a social norm or such a law, then you always end up at the Victorian equilibrium. Okay. And so one way I interpret uh, what's going on in the West is that going back to May 68, you know, sexual repression was uh, overturned in those years, and so the social norm of having to marry disappeared, and we are in a situation where Western society is gradually moving out of the Victorian equilibrium in the direction of the sex and the city equilibrium. It's still the case, if you, if you look at the data, things are never as clear in the model as in the model. It's clear that men at the bottom of income distribution of trouble marrying, which is what my mother predicts. For women at the top of the income distribution, things are more complex, right? Because they still marry a lot, but there is also, it's also true that they tend to divorce a lot. So the sex and the city phenomenon seems to appear in the form of high uh, divorce rate, as opposed to low marriage rates. So I wanted to, to just, you know, to, to complete the discussion about this paper. I wanted to mention this. Uh, this uh, yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I think just is, as an amateur socio sociologist, I, I would say, yes, for sure. The, 
social mores have changed and have allowed, you know, I, I think the SATC sex in the city lifestyle just would not have been approved of, you know, even one or two generations ago. Right. Does the equilibrium have any effect on TFR, the, the reproductive rate, overall reproductive rate? That's uh, not something my model allows to look at. Because in my model, uh, and maybe this is a bit ahead of reality, although again, there are signs of it, uh, but the, the, the high-skilled women uh, do not marry, but they do have children from uh, alpha males. So there's no prediction that fertility should fall. So of course, it's an interesting phenomenon, but my model is not constructed to address this phenomenon. Yep, I understand. But I, I think a lot of these, the same people in the manosphere probably would argue that the Victorian equilibrium leads to higher TFR than the other one. But I sure. Understand. But there are plenty of arguments. There are people who say that you know, fertility falls because of, of social security. You know, you don't need children to pay for your old age uh, consumption. And of course, this has nothing to do with uh, my age markets. Uh, so... There are plenty of trends that might be uh, used to explain the, to explain the fall in fertility, and of course there is no scarcity of sociological or psychological explanations. You know, selfishness, uh, atheism, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, I, I are you familiar with the work of an economic historian named Greg Clark at UC Davis? I've heard of it. Yes. You might be interested in him because he claims to show using all kinds of marriage records, very deep and old data sets, that assortative mating is extremely strong, actually, and has been happening for, at least in England, where he has most of his data, hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. In my model, there is perfect assortative mating. The both equilibria are completely assortative. That is to say, richer men marry richer women. It's simply that the SATC is highly hypergamic, unlike the Victorian equilibrium. That is to say, okay, uh, women are poorer than their husbands in the SATC equilibrium. But it's still very assortative. If I'm richer, I will marry a woman with a higher human capital. This is what it means to be assortative. Yes. So I should have said something more specific, which is I think he has evidence that generally, you know, women from a particular strata are marrying men from the same strata, so or similar strata. So uh it, it's more like the Victorian ah. equilibrium in the past, not maybe not today, but in the past it was more like the right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, the the question of the extent to which we are moving to an SATC equilibrium is, remains, of course, an open question. And also, you know, the strata itself is endogenous because if you know you are, I talk about that in my paper, if you know you are not going to get married, you have lower incentives to uh, accumulate human capital. So you are going to be downgraded in terms of strata. Yes. So what we observe a lot for example, a lot, uh, substantially, is uh, women who, who marry men 
from the same strata, but the man earns more than, than the woman. She's a, a teacher and he's a lawyer, something like that, or a doctor. This is what we observe. But it's the same strata, but what do we, what do we mean by that? Yeah, in, in his work, there's a very technical way of defining what you mean by the strata. And even by looking at large biobanks, you can even see how correlated are the polygenic scores of two married individuals. Right. So you might find his work interesting. It, it does actually connect to yours in certain ways. Okay. So it remains to be, it's, it's clear that historically the Victorian equilibrium uh, prevailed. Uh, if any, because there were strong social uh, uh, norms against, uh, you know, uh, single motherhood and so forth. Yes. Now it's no longer the case, and we would like to know the extent to which uh, society um, is moving towards something resembling more uh, uh, sex and the city equilibrium. Yes. Well... Part of the reason I was interested in your paper is because this is not so much about marriage, but more about mating. If you look at the data science around what is actually happening on Tinder and all these other dating apps, they're they apparently support very strongly an insane amount of hypergamy when it comes to mating. Right. And so that that's why I thought when I saw your paper, I thought, wow, this guy, this guy, I, I, I later realized you're not necessarily talking about mating, but you're talking about marriage. But my initial reaction was, wow, this, I predicted this long ago, so <laughs> just mistaken. But anyway. Right, right. And that's a comparatively new phenomenon. Yes. Because in the traditional society, uh, people, well, they were those arranged marriages and they were quite assorted. Yes. Well, very good. I've, I've taken up lots of your time. I really appreciate you staying up to talk to me. And uh, any, any final message that you want to give to my listeners? No, I guess fine for now. Okay. Well, Gilles, thank you very much. Going to have now. Yes. I wish you a good evening. Thank you very much for contacting me. Yes. <laughs>